but they should be saying, you know, when we get this under control, we're not just going to walk away from our responsibilities. It should be a generic route. That that is what where the government has fallen down. I'm not saying they should open it immediately because we have so much irregular movement at the moment. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall at The Spectator. Well, I've been exploring taboo topics and one of those topics that will surefire get you called a bigot, far-right, hard-right, racist and um, apparently this week also a homophobe is the issue of immigration. And Suella Braverman has just done a speech in America which has captured the imagination and the uh, ire of the nation. And uh, so to discuss it and discuss the state of immigration in the UK. I have the pleasure of speaking with author of the books, The British Dream, Success and, F- Success and Failures of Post-War Immigration, which celebrates its 10-year anniversary to this year. Uh, Head, Hand, Heart, the, the Struggle for Dignity and Status in 21st Century, and the absolutely superb and seminal, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. Uh, it is, of course, David Goodhart. David, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the invitation, Winston. Uh, well, uh, it's, I'm normally sort of uh, try and ease my guests into it, but I thought I'd start with a, a, a tough question for you. Um, how is the amateur a cappella group going? <laughs> well, I'm hoping to form one with you as the, as the meister. Yeah. Um, in the, in the next few weeks. Um, no, I, I've, I've been in a couple of singing groups in my time and I, I'm, I'm looking to form a new one and you're a musician and uh, you enjoy singing. So yeah. acapella, by the way, can mean pretty well anything these days. I mean, just a whole lot of people getting together and singing men and women, instruments or not. Um, Have you got an idea of the repertoire you want us to be? Kind of um, anything really, you know, pop music, um, um, so it really seems not, like you've given this a lot of thought. I, I, every time I bump into you, you mention that you want to start this group. Uh, but now that I'm pressing you on it, it seems like it's maybe not uh, something that you're so serious about. But anyway, that's maybe something for another time. Um, uh, so I want to talk about Suella's speech, and uh, I, she, in which she says that illegal immigration and immigration is an existential threat to the West. Do you think that she is correct with this year a million net migrants forecast to arrive in the UK. In 2022, 330,000 illegal immigrants into the EU, 2.6 million illegal immigrants into the US and 45,000 illegal immigrants into the UK. Is migration, illegal immigration, an existential threat to the West? I mean, existential threat. So it's a little bit hyperbolic, but uh, it is, it's, it's a, a massive issue. And it's a massive issue partly because it divides uh, electorates and it divides um, the, the, the voters in uh, liberal Western democracies. Um, not quite down the middle, probably most countries, two thirds or three quarters of people probably think that um, certainly in the high immigration countries like like Britain, France, Germany, uh, that immigration is too high, that society is changing too fast, and but uh, the, the kind of most influential quarter or a third of the population uh, either don't go along with that or feel that the the cost of restricting immigration, both legal and uh, illegal asylum refugee immigration, is too high. Um, 
So, but, you know, as the numbers have risen again this year, uh, I mean, we're not yet back to anything like the level in Europe that we had in 2015 after Syria, uh, but the numbers are creeping back up. And, uh, you know, we've had this dramatic uh, episode in Lampedusa, the Italian island in the Mediterranean, where 11,000 Africans just arrived, was it last week? Uh, and the significance of that is or not only the fact that 11,000 uh, people arriving in Lampedusa is larger than the population of Lampedusa itself, which I think is about six or 7,000, uh, caused a huge crisis in, uh, in Italian politics. Um, Ursula uh, von Leyen... Um, the uh, the EU leader turned up to give her support to, to Maloney. Um, curiously enough, a little sort of sp- sp- uh, in parenthesis, it's created a sort of division within um, the new right in Europe between um, Marine Le Pen and uh, and Maloney as to how one should how one should try and combat this issue. Marine Le Pen has, has basically given up on the EU. She says the EU is just immigrationist. Um, whereas Maloney is still hoping for support, but the, the 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 real significance, in a way, I think of the of the Lampedusa um, episode is that it shows just how difficult it is going to be. Not impossible, but just how difficult it is going to be to restrict movement um, across the Mediterranean from North Africa, because the EU had just signed a deal with Tunisia, which is where the people were coming from. Um, I think eventually it was going to pay out about um, half a billion or a billion euros. I think they'd, they'd formally agreed 100 million euros to precisely to stop this kind of movement. And yet it happened like weeks after they had signed this agreement. I mean, this could be you know, a clever negotiating uh, move on the part of the Tunisian government to, to just to emphasise what an important gateway they are mm-hmm. and how important it is to perhaps pay them Two billion euros rather than one billion euros. Who, who knows? Um, but I mean, across Europe, obviously, the, the, the numbers have been going up um, quite sharply, and the sense that democratic governments are, are left kind of wringing their hands because of the way. I mean, this applies in in the UK as much, if not more, than anywhere else. That the liberalisation of the rules uh, that, that govern the movement of refugees and asylum seekers basically makes it very difficult to stop people coming. Uh, it, once they're here, it makes it very, very difficult to, to deport them. Um, hence, our government has, has taken a different track um, because of the, the embarrassment of having 45,000 people a year coming across the channel. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the, partly the visibility of it. I mean, when 45,000 people are coming on lorries or through overstaying visas, it doesn't become such a big political issue. But yeah. when you have that challenge to the common sense citizen's idea that, you know, we belong to a nation state, one of the definitions of a nation state is it has borders. One of the definitions of democratic government is that you control those borders. And when you have the inability to do that, kind of being rubbed in our faces every day, um, it does cause great unease. And it has led to our government taking what seems to many people, even people who support what they're their broad intention is the slightly eccentric idea of sending people to an African state that most people remember as the site of a of a terrible genocide um, within living memory. Um, Rwanda, yeah. Rwanda. Um, David, you mentioned the, the Tunisia um, 
pact uh, preceding the Lampedusa situation. Uh, similar things happened where the Conservative government, since 2018, when the Stop the Boats sort of pledge began, there was the UK-France Joint Action Plan January 2019, first UK-France Joint Statement in November 2020, second UK-France Joint Statement 20, July 21, the Nationality and Borders Act, April 2022, first scheduled Rwanda flight in June 2022, third UK-France Joint Statement, November 22, the promise to stop the boats in January 2023, <laughs> and the Illegal Migration Act this year. And in that time, we've had 108,000 illegal immigrants. Like All of these pacts and deals, it seems like nothing's actually being done. Firstly, has the Conservative government just completely... Uh, messed up this entire thing has, has it they well it's faced with a very difficult situation it's faced with a kind of a, a legal structure um and a, a and also a sort of semi-dysfunctional home office um and to be fair to it it has come up with this idea uh, that this rwanda idea which um obviously immensely controversial although it gets support from a, a majority of people in Britain. It is now being looked at by other European countries. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and things are definitely shifting in Europe. You know, you have, you have the, the... Do you support the Rwanda deal? Well, um, like I'm, I'm, I, I, I support the principle behind it. I think there's nothing wrong with saying you cannot come to the country of your choice. If you are in danger, you are suffering persecution, uh, then you need to be in safety. You don't mm -hmm. need to be in safety in Shepherd's Bush. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're coming here, we can decide where the safe place is. I mean, in the longer run, I've actually just, just written a piece for the think tank that I um, work at, Part-Time Policy Exchange, on safe and legal routes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we basically need to turn around the whole assumptions. Refugee and asylum needs to become like legal immigration. We basically decide who comes here. That is much, much fairer. Uh, than the current free-for-all. Uh, as everybody emphasises, you know, 70, 80% of people who come across the channel are, are, are fit young men. You have to be a fit young man to survive the journey often. Uh, and you have to come from a relatively well-off family. You know, we're talking about the, the middle class in poor countries, basically. Mm -hmm. People who can afford five or $10,000 to get themselves... Male as well. Male. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that is a survival of the fittest Darwinian system. I mean, it, it's sort of... It, it's sort of peculiar in some ways that the people on the left are supporting supporting the system. People on the left should be supporting a regulated, controlled system in which we choose, Western governments choose people from UNHCR camps or UNHCR registers, in, as indeed we did uh, in the Syria refugee mm -hmm. regime. Back between 2015 and 2020, we took in not about that many, it was about 20,000 people over five or six years, but it worked really well. And they were placed in specific communities around the country. And yes, and we had a really, you know, a proper um, a relationship between central government and local authorities, and it's all worked extremely well. Um, that was community sponsorship? Um, that was, no, that was that was essentially organised by the by the national or local state here. Okay. Um, um, but actually, what, one of the things I'm proposing is that, yes, in the... By the way, we have taken... Something the government rightly emphasises, we have actually taken about half a million people since 2015 through safe and legal routes, obviously the big majority being the Ukrainians in the last year and a half. And Hong Kongers. The, the Hong Kongers. We also had the, uh, an Afghan scheme and this Syria scheme and some, and some 
tiddly little schemes as well. Let's talk uh, about the safe and yeah. legal routes because this is something that gets a lot of, of, of pushback. As you mentioned, I think we've had 180,000 Ukrainians, 140,000 Hong Kongers. And the safe and legal routes are the, the UK resettlement scheme, community sponsorship and mandate scheme, which, as far as I can find out, there was 904 people. Yeah, tiny, yeah, yeah, exactly. In the year ending so, June. So that's absolutely tiny. So then, then you have the refugee family reunion visas, uh, which is another um, way way in. But apart from that, you can't even get if you you won't be able to get on a flight here. So, what what are they? Are those real? Do you think that there's enough being done for safe and legal routes to get uh, to the UK? I mean, I, I think it's it's a sort of a matter of timing and alignment. I mean, I think I think it's perfectly understandable that the government um, is not doing this at the moment when so many people are coming through illegal routes, uh, irregular routes. Um, so I think. You know, you need to have that under control before you start uh, opening up these safe and legal routes. But you can start talking about them now. I mean, I think one of the one of the failures with the government presentation on this is that they're op- they're they're open to the accusation that has come constantly from the refugee organisations that yeah, it's all very well to talk about the the half a million safe and legal routes, but those are all country specific. There is no generic safe and legal route for. A Christian in Pakistan mm-hmm. who faces persecution, a gay person in Iran who faces mm-hmm. persecution or whatever. That is what they say. And it is a reasonable point. And the government should say, when we get the irregular entry, this unfair, free-for-all irregular entry under control, we will have a system that we will, and we will decide every year what the cap should be. And that will depend on other flows and so on. But, you know, we'll have a cap of 20,000, 30,000 a year. We will do our bit for the global refugee problem. And we will have a system like the Syria scheme, where we get the UNHCR, or we could have our own people out there collaborating with the UNHCR, as Canada does, to select people. And then you can, you can select the people who are, who are most in danger, who are most threatened mm-hmm. um, by the Taliban or or whatever or who who are most um, or who are most vulnerable who have the most um, the, 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 the most difficult medical conditions or whatever um, and it'll mainly mainly be women and children. Well, in some ways, this uh, what what the Afghan, Ukrainian, and Hong Konger schemes is a version of that is being specifically targeting groups, but that still hasn't appeased. The opponents of well, of that, 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 as I say, because they say there isn't a generic route. It's all very well, you know. You you have these specific country regimes, but what if you are, uh, you know, a, a Christian? So you in don't Pakistan think there should be a generic route? Yes, I'm saying there should be a generic route. That that is what where the government has fallen down. I'm not saying they should open it immediately because we have so much irregular movement at the mm-hmm. moment. But they should be talking about it. You know, when they make speeches. Um, and Jenrick, I think, has mentioned it in, in a couple of his speeches. But they should be saying, you know, when we get this under control, mm. we're not just going to walk away from our responsibilities. We have, you know, we're a big, you know, liberal, globally um, um, outward looking country and all that. Um, we, you know, we need to do our part. And this is what we are planning to do. So we're going to have a generic uh, safe and legal route that we will we will go and select people from the UNHCR register and you know we'll select the most vulnerable and we'll bring in 20 30,000 a year or whatever it is we might all, I also propose that we should have for those there is a small number of people who really are in immediate danger obviously very few people who are coming from northern france into britain they're, they're not in immediate very danger few or, for but there, none but there are yeah there are people who face you know they're like there was a, a famous christian uh, woman in Pakistan a few years ago who was who was prosecuted for blasphemy and she was going to be executed, um, and there was an attempt to get her out 
by uh, Sajid Javid, I think. In the end, she went to Canada, she, which she was. But, you know, there is a very small number of people who are in absolute desperate straits like that. Um, and there, there perhaps ought to be some sort of special red route for them that uh, you could have a kind of ad hoc committee of the, of the you know, security services and the foreign office and local ambassadors and so on. Um, but, that, but that would always be, I think, a, pr- a pretty small number. Um, you know, you're talking more about these large, these millions of people who have been displaced because of conflicts, who are living uh, either in different parts of their own country or in a neighbouring country, and some of them in a, in a de- some of them really would benefit from coming to a Western country. Many of them can be better helped where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that that is also a, that a, a point that's often forgotten. Syrian um, strategy as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a very good book a few years ago. Um, I, I, I forget the. Uh, the authors now, but um, um, in, in which they talked about you know the importance of making making refugee camps sort of tolerable places where you know not only do they have health clinics and schools and so on, but places where people can actually work, places can where people can actually sort of create a life, and also they they then remain quite close to the their country of origin. They understand what the, the position is. Where, you know, if the conflict has died down, perhaps they can go home and so on. Rather than this assumption that you know, as soon as somebody faces a difficulty in a faraway country, they should be you know coming to live in Stockport. Um, um, you know, it, it's 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 unfair. It creates an unbalanced world. We need you know these places need to develop, and they're often losing their most their brightest and most energetic and ambitious people. They're the people who are on the boats crossing the channel. Um, so. So we need a generic safe and legal route as well as the country-specific ones. Once we've got irregular movement um, uh, more under control, um, but we also, I mean, the other big development. I mean, so one one recent model is the the Syria scheme that we had between 2015 and 2020. Uh, uh, you know, a, a, a generic version of that. The other thing that we've had, of course, is the, as you mentioned, is the uh, Homes for Ukraine scheme, which uh, was you know, 120,000 British people um, accepted into their home, Ukrainians. Now, admittedly, it was dramatic. We were, you know, these are people, you know, who are kind of like us to some extent. They're within the, you know, live within the kind of broad European space. Uh, and we were seeing that they were being bombed out of their homes mm. every night on television. So there's a huge amount of sympathy. Um, you know, those things don't necessarily apply to most of the world's refugees. But um, but what it did show is that the, the sort of scepticism, I think, of of kind of Whitehall officials that that you know ordinary British people can can actually step up and and look after. Uh, look after refugees for for a year or two. Um, their scepticism, I think, was 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 proven wrong, um, and we should really tap into that because I think the anxieties people have about particularly irregular immigration. I mean, people generally think that you know the 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 kind of relaxed view about immigration that we had after post Brexit, the feeling that um, that free movement had ended and anxiety about immigration did decline quite substantially. It's great, popped right back up again, partly because we because legal migration is now at such an extraordinary high level, you know, 600,000 net uh, uh, a year. And of course, we have the boats, which is this, this sort of constant aggravating factor, which reminds people that our governments are impotent when it comes to, <laughs> to mm. controlling our, 
our borders. Be, be, you know, before Brexit, we were, I think it hit 330,000 net migration yeah, yeah. For the, was the maximum legal migrants into the UK. Well, now we're at like 600 hitting a million. It's forgetting well, We're not so- hitting a million. No, I mean, that, that's wrong. I mean, it's going to come down, not up. Huh. Uh, net migration is up. But, well, Why is it pre- coming down? Perhaps we can, shall we come back to yeah, okay. legal migration a bit later? Okay. I can't, where, 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 oh, yes, yeah, we were talking about homes to Ukraine. Um, yeah. So notwithstanding the fact that there is much greater anxiety about immigration in general. I think there are particular anxieties that people have about irregular migration. One is the enormous cost. Now, you might say that's partly government stroke home office incompetence, the fact that we've allowed this huge backlog to develop with the you know £8 million a day in hotels, £4 billion in general last year. But cost, uh, integration issues and... Security issues. You know, when someone is coming on a boat, it's much much harder to sort of screen them in case they have you know connections to um, you know unsavoury organisations or whatever. Um, now, if you, I mean, the, the Homes for Ukraine scheme has sort of set a new template in a way um, for the uh, the way in which we could accommodate uh, refugees. So if we Assuming a, a new system under which we're selecting most refugees, a la Syria scheme, um, then when they come here, uh, instead of uh, instead of sitting in hotels, they are distributed around the country by by people of goodwill. You know, there are lots of people who are very very pro refugee. Well, let them you know put their money where their mouth is. Let them step up, as many of them did mm-hmm. in the case of Ukraine, and say we will take. Uh, I mean, not necessarily living in their homes, but we will help them. We will, you know, help them with, you know, English conversation classes or whatever. You know, tap into that goodwill that is out there. Um, so that helps to reduce the cost. Um, uh, and also, the other factor is um, that the government should be looking to diaspora organisations. I mean, why is the, you know, the British Afghan Council or the British Iranian Association, why are these organisations not being asked to step up um, in, you know, in the way that people did uh, with Ukrainians? Mm. I mean, you know, with their, their co-nationals who are coming here, you know, we could say, uh, you know, Iran is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a pretty dreadful theocratic state. You know, quite a few people coming across the channel are, uh, you know, Iranian doctors who don't want to live in a theocratic state. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we could say um, we will take 2,000, uh, you know, they have to obviously be outside the country. I mean, they, they, obviously they have left the country and come to northern France in order to get on a boat to come here. But they, they would have to be registered with the UNHCR somewhere outside Iran. Um, the British Iranian Association could say, right, we're going oh, to yeah, take yeah. 2,000 Iranian, 2,000 of our co-nationals this year um, you know, get the UNHCR to provide us with yeah. the, the, the 2,000 Iranians who most need um, to, to live in a safe Western country. Um, That's and, a uh, practical way of implementing exactly, what you were describing yeah, earlier. Yeah. Of the, uh, so, the, yeah. so it's the idea, sorry, the, the, the concept that I was, I was looking for was sponsorship. You know, yeah. I mean, that is what, um, you know, we have these, you mentioned them earlier, we, we have these schemes, but they, they've, been, you know, they've been left to rot. Now, I mean, nobody comes through them. And that's partly because so many people have been coming through irregular routes. So the government has had no incentive at all to advertise the fact that you, have, you can have community sponsorship. So um, I don't know, say, you know... Um, Churches have been... An orthodox community yeah. you know, in West London or yeah. a 
Jewish or a Muslim community or whatever, with, with an attachment to a particular yeah. religion or country, can say, you know, we will we will put up some some money, we will find places for people to live, um, and that deals at a stroke with both the, the the kind of financial anxiety that people have about these large numbers coming. Uh, and the and the integration and, and security angles. So if you had more sponsorship, either that general sort of individual sponsorship that you had in the case of uh, Homes for Ukraine, or more likely community sponsorship uh, or family sponsorship. You know, lots of people here who have um, who have relations. You know, who are in, who are in dire straits somewhere. You know, they could appeal to have them put on the list of people who come here via the safe and legal route. And then again, the costs are kept down, and the integration aspect is dealt with, and the security aspect. Can I challenge you on the Homes for Ukraine scheme as a reflection of what's really going on? Because with that scheme, and I worked on it, uh, so I, I I saw it in action. We thought that the war was going to last three to six months. So we thought we were taking just women and children and that it would be a short program and that they would go home afterward. That is completely different, let's say, to the Hong Konger uh, program, which I've also been working on, which was those Hong Kongers, they had no intention of going back to Hong Kong. They are they are moving here for good. That is, an ascent, even though you, you can see it as a kind of, it is certainly a political crisis in Hong Kong, that is an economic migration of sorts. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a blurring of of the two, and I don't think what happened in Ukraine truly reflects the appetite for Brits for for immigration. I'm, I, look, I'm not. I mean, as I just said, you know, there's the the, the scepticism about large scale migration wherever it comes from, whether it's legal or irregular, has gone right back up again. You know, we're in, in the kind of high sixties of people who think that immigration is too high. Um, and I agree, but we're, talk- we're talking about a sort of subset of the population. You know, we're talking about the Guardian reading classes. Um, although, actually, I saw some um, data on party support among people who were taking the hundred, roughly 120,000 people who stepped up to take people. I think it's a bit less than 120,000, actually. And it was kind of reasonably well distributed across huh. the three main parties. Huh. Tor- you know, it was sort of like nearly 30% of Tories, a bit more Labour and, uh, and, and Lib Dem, perhaps. So you get... Um, uh, so, so the... the the, the two things are not are not yeah. necessarily in, in conflict. I mean, I would challenge you slightly on that. I think the Hong Kong story is slightly more complicated than that. I think a lot of people are, have have taken their um, their right to get British residency as a kind of insurance policy. You know, I mean, life in Hong Kong still goes on. And there are you know, there's a relatively high degree of business freedom. You may not be able to speak your mind politically, but you know, people have there lived there all their lives. They they don't necessarily want to leave unless they really have to, unless things get really, really heavy. Um, and obviously, some people will look. But of that 140,000, I think you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, um, perhaps a half, two thirds have come to live here permanently. I think others are kind of yo-yoing a bit, or, or certainly, using I've known some policy. who have gone back to Hong Kong. Yeah, even, um, but they're not. Uh, I would say of the 140,000, it's a very slim amount of them who have who are actually fleeing direct persecution from the CCP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, that raises the kind of awkward issue of integration in the fact that, of course, some groups are easier to integrate than other groups. Uh-huh. Um, something that, um, you know, people don't really like to talk about. Well, let's about. talk about it, that and multiculturalism, <laughs> because that's, yeah, the, that's yeah, the thing. It is, that's, an, it is an awkward thing. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, we had, um, what, what is it, 175,000, 180,000 Ukrainians came over in the blinking of an eye and, and, uh, and 120,000 Brits stepped up to... I mean, we would not, 
that would not be the case with Afghans. I mean, or people from uh, poorer, more traditional parts of the world. And apart from anything else, Afghans tend to have very large families. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're talking about, you know, a one Ukrainian woman with a uh, with a child or two children, it's a very, very different thing from... Uh, and also, it's quite likely that that Ukrainian woman will speak some, if not quite good English. With a Compare that with an Afghan family of four or six, uh, much more traditional norms, um, you know, when it comes to religiosity, relations between men and women, or, you know, we're talking about huge, huge cultural gulfs. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, that isn't an issue with, no one talks about the Hong Kongers, because, you know, they just kind of blend in. There are there may be particular parts of London where there's a disproportionate number of them, but on, there are no sort of areas of big cities in the way that you get with uh, with lots of other uh, minorities in the UK. Uh, that well, with the Hong Kongers, that's be- there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, is they were wearing as a Hong Kong, you've, you're sort of wearing two hats anyway. One is a British hat, and one is a is a Hong, yeah. a Hong Kong hat, which is a mixture. Of, yeah. Sorry, rather the Hong Kong hat is a, is kind of a half British, half Chinese hat that they're wearing. So they are pre, they are that it's a country that the that didn't exist until Britain created it. Yeah. And so they have culturally they are they are sort of half British. Yeah. So polit, their political culture is quite very close to ours, closer to ours than it is to the CCP. Yeah. But also uh, the, of the ones who came over, a lot of them were Christian, a, a disproportionate right, yeah. amount were Christian yeah. compared to... And they tend to be middle class, they tend to be educated, they speak you know, English sometimes as a first language. I mean, or certainly exactly. pretty well or fluent, you know, quasi-fluently. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, obviously a lot of those, a lot of the normal linguistic or cultural barriers to integration just don't apply in their case. Mm-hmm. So they're not noticed and... Indeed, you know, they could be an enormous boost to the British economy. It's something, I mean, I don't think the OBR are kind of taking this into account. But I mean, if we end up with, you know, over the next two or three years, 250, 300,000 Hong Kongers, you know, who are kind of quietly getting on opening businesses, you know, you know, raising the, the, the sort of educational and entrepreneurial capital of the country. I mean, you know, they might put half a percent on GDP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, whereas, you know, most other forms of, of irregular migration are tend to be the reverse. I mean, they tend to be a drag on, on uh, uh, you know, the, it's very hard for the people to, um, to contribute significantly economically. So they're, they're dependent on welfare often. And as I say, they come from traditional parts of the world and they are, often have very big families. Uh, you know, that they're, they're consuming more in, in public services and welfare than they are Yes, that's what Suela Braverman said in her speech, is that they don't well, contribute it's very to hard taxes. Well, it's very hard for them to, to contribute. I mean, you know, many of them will do uh, in, in the longer run. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, the, I mean, of course, one, one of the... We have to also be realistic about the fact that, you know, my idea of uh, of having a generic and a generic safe and legal route, uh, you know, perhaps alongside some continuing country specific ones. Um, as I say, all of this is premised on getting the irregular movement largely under control. But you know, when and if that is done, uh, you can start thinking about these safe and legal routes. Uh, but one of the problems with the safe and legal route is that you know if you if you have the kind of power of God, if you have the power of selection, you tend to take the most vulnerable and the, ne- the most needy. So um, uh, even if you know we're taking twenty five or thirty thousand people from the UNHCR register, uh, these are people who, on the whole, are not going to be 
economic contributors, at least for quite a few years. I mean, their, their children may be, um, uh, but they are probably not going to be economic contributors, unlike the young men coming across the channel on the boats, you know, who are, um, they are, you know, kind of ready and willing to work. Indeed, that's one of the reasons they're coming here is that they they want to um, mm-hmm. they want to live in a wealthy country and they, they don't want to be sitting at home on welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, it is one of the costs, as it were, of controlling the system uh, is that in the medium term, the economic costs may actually be slightly higher. But on the other hand, if you've controlled it, then you're not spending four billion pounds a year on... Um, on uh, refugee costs or irregular irregular costs. Can I ask you a question which is sort of for any progressive listeners that I might have still retained? Uh, <laughs> yeah. is the, it's the issue of multiculturalism, and this we saw this, Lisa, Lisa Nanny making a defense of it on Question Time last week. Um, do you think uh, uh, Angela Merkel said that multiculturalism had failed, David Cameron had, had said, and yet people are still defending it. Do you think multiculturalism has failed? It all depends, of course, what you mean by multiculturalism. And that's part of the problem with this debate is that, uh, and it is is interesting that that was the part of the Suella Brahman speech that was most picked up on, uh, because much of the rest of it, she was just, as it were, restating uh, government policy or things that she's already said. But it was her, you know, her her reflecting the the kind of Merkel-Cameron scepticism. But what, what she, she is using multiculturalism, uh, I think, in, in a sort of more accurate sense than most of her critics. Most of her critics hear the word multiculturalism and they they actually hear multi ethnicity. They mm. hear that they, mm. they hear her criticising the fact that we're a multi ethnic society. Mm-hmm. I mean, virtually nobody uh, is saying we can't be a multi-ethnic society or we should reverse it. I mean, it's something like 3% of the population think that uh, you have to be white to be truly British. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of racialized idea of a, you know, of a purely white Britain, uh, you know, is held by a tiny, tiny proportion of the population. Multiculturalism uh, is, you know, is an idea originally came out of Canada in the, in the, in the kind of 1950s. It's the idea, um, and particularly the way it's been a- applied in the UK, um, is a kind of you can come here and be yourself. Uh, that and, and it sort of flowed in some ways um, quite automatically from a kind of almost a colonial mentality. Um, you know, you know, British people had gone out to, to Africa and India and other parts of the world uh, and had maintained pretty strict sort of racial ethnic um, divisions. And... Um, when we had the, um, the, the the Nationality Act in 1948, which basically provided an open door to everybody in the Empire and Commonwealth, uh, right up until 1962, I mean, that is when most non-white immigration really took off on a large scale in the UK in those, in those early years, um, um, before the door was sort of half shut, although actually non-white immigration continued... Uh, even at higher levels in some years after 1962. Um, but so that, it was that sort of a, almost sort of colonial assumption that when people came here, I mean, it was a kind of a, a mixture of sort of common sense and and a colonial mentality. The idea uh, that, that um, what, what's the word? Uh, there's a technical term for it. Um, 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 that basically, you know, people are more comfortable with people like themselves. Homophily, homophily. 
um, uh, that you're, you know, you're, you're, um, you're, you, you want to live among people who you share a language and culture and way of life with. Um, and, and that obviously is true. <laughs> um, and so it, there was going to be, uh, there was always going to be a, a sort of clustering when, when people came to live here. Um, what I think in retrospect we got wrong um, is that we were sort of too laissez-faire. We, went, we had a kind of laissez-faire liberal stroke colonial version of multiculturalism, which said, um, you know, it's fine to come here and, and live separately so long as you can obey the law and pay your taxes. Mm. It was an absolutely minimalist um, notion of multiculturalism. Uh, and of course, this is this is often contrasted with the French approach. I mean, on the ground, there wasn't a huge amount of difference actually between what was happening in in, in Britain and France, uh, with, apart from numbers. But um, yeah, I mean, they, France had a lot of people coming from its North African colonies uh, in in the same era. Um, but they had this they had this rhetoric of integration. We're all French people, you know, uh, and this led to various sort of rather weird things. Like they so they. They don't really know what the, the condition of their ethnic minority populations in France because they're not allowed to, to collect data about, but because everybody is just French, you know, mm. whatever you look like, whatever your religion or background, you are, you know, you're we're all one under the Marseillaise kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, that didn't uh, that that I mean, they have integration problems that are, are as great, if not greater, than ours. Um, but we didn't. Um, we 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 didn't sort of say to people when they come, yes, come here and be yourself up to a point, but you are now living in Britain and these are the rules and, you know, we would like you to kind of join in the society. And, and some groups did that and some groups didn't um, and or, or, or not sufficiently. Um, you know, we there are different things one could focus on. I mean, there's the linguistic aspect. I mean, most people, obviously, second generation Brits from whatever background, um, you know, speak English as their usually as their mother tongue uh, but there are still some uh, you know older women often from um, South Asian backgrounds who uh, who tended not to mix in society so never spoke English well uh, that was an issue the the I mean ju just the sort of over concentration of certain groups in certain areas um, the big cultural and value divide between perhaps particularly between devout uh, religious perhaps particularly muslims um the, the they're probably the biggest group in the uk with very strong religiosity and often as i said earlier with very traditional views about relations between men and women um you know these things have have caused tension uh you know if you and you look at a place like leicester leicester has become uh, a focus of of uh, of concern about well, well a focus of discussion about the multicultural you know is multicultural working well or not you know well you know I, I spent quite a lot of time in Leicester before while I was writing my uh, British dream book that you mentioned uh, 10 years ago um, and um, Leicester is is both a success and a failure in some ways I mean it it's a success if you set the bar quite low and I think this, this is yet another of the disservices that Enoch Powell and his famous speech um, did for, for British politics. He set the bar, you know, so long as, you know, the River Thames is not sort of, you know, flowing with, with blood, then we're, we're, we're doing okay. You know, because Enoch Powell has been proved wrong, there is not 
um, you know, f- a great physical violence between different ethnic groups in Britain. Therefore, everything is fine. Well, uh, that is that is setting the bar ridiculously low. Um, but to, you and know, there to, has been some physical violence. Well, of course, Leicester, there has been some. Though, yeah, yeah. Um, not between whites and non-whites. On the whole, that's between well, Leicester different. Sikhs and Muslims. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, you know, Leicester. I mean, I remember being quite surprised when I went to Leicester. You know, back in well, I was probably there in 2011, 2012, and it was you know heralded as the great success story of of multiculturalism, and it was it is a very divided town in in the neighbourhoods that you know there there's a kind of white working class estates, there is a kind of Hindu area, there's a Muslim area, uh, you know there are Gujaratis, there are different you know, and there's a there's a, a small black Caribbean area I, I seem to remember, you, you know you have. I mean, there there are some areas. Probably the more middle class areas tend to be a bit more mixed. Um, there's um, there's the area just outside Leicester that I went to that uh, it's like sort of Hampstead. It's, it's sort of in the semi countryside. Um, can't remember the name of it, but it's it was like full of the um, you know Indian heritage consultants who worked at the local hospital. You know who who mixed perfectly happily with the affluent white people who uh, you know who lived in. Lived in the um, the sort of rural suburbs of of the city, um, but in the city itself, you get these you know huge divisions and and the fact that nobody ever seemed to think that there was an issue with that, I suppose, um, is a reflection of the sort of laissez-faire liberal multiculturalism mm-hmm. model that we adopted. Um, and you know you could say it works up to a point. Everybody everybody keeps to themselves, except perhaps in various sort of sub elites. But a lot of the kind of ordinary people in all of those different groups probably don't mix. Friendship groups won't. Um, no, this may, it may be this may be improving amongst younger generations. But you know, if you go to school in a you know overwhelmingly white area, if or in an overwhelmingly Muslim area, you know all your friends are going to be you know. Uh, that's why actually university often ends up being uh, um, in those in those parts of Britain. University ends up being a very important point of integration because often you know you won't have. You won't have met, um, mm. you know, you come from certain communities, you won't have met or certainly been friends with, uh, with white people until you get to university. And then, um, and then you tend to get more, more mixing. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you say, uh, you know, the, the, the Leicester model um, was never, uh, uh, I think, in some ways, a very attractive model. Um, it, was peace, it was more or less peaceful. But now, as you say, you've seen this conflict between... Uh, Hindus and Muslims, um, and um, or you could cite the uh, the, the recent um, who are in Peckham, uh, you know, kind of you know angry black mob turns up outside a, 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 a Asian pharmacist shop. Um, you know, this guy's now in hiding. I mean, that, there are you know there, there are historic tensions between uh, between Asians and blacks in in many cities. The, the Asians are often landlords or small shop owners. Um, um, often very mistrustful of their black customers and so on, and that and that spilled out in Peckham a few a few weeks ago. Mm. But I think you know the, the Leicester, uh, you know the, the Leicester story. You can look at it through either lens in a way. Um, but I think um, I think we we could have done better. There could have been a more conscious effort to mix people up. There was actually initially back in the back in the kind of early sixties. There were very sort of uh, British versions of busing, um, but uh, they proved pretty unpopular as they were in America, so they stopped. Um, but it's you know 
I mean, because people go to school in the places they live, you know, that you can you perpetuate those differences often. Um, you, say, you say we could have done better, though. So, would you like there to be a change in approach by by government to integration? Well, I mean, different standards. Um, Should there be obligations to learn English? Should there be, uh, you know, the, the extreme example might be Singapore, where you you yeah. weren't they didn't want different groups yeah, living so in they, different places, so they. Integrate, integrated in living public housing, had to, public yeah, housing yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think I, I think that's sort of too illiberal for us. Um, I mean, uh, you know, every now and then, I mean, it used to be the case whenever there was a sort of terrorist attack by British Muslims, you know, there'd be a kind of wave of anxiety. Uh, there'd be a new report on integration. There'd be you know, new phrases, parallel lives. You know, it came up in the uh, in the early two thousands. We had the um, uh, more recent report, uh, when was it, six or seven years ago. Uh, and, I mean, Trump, you know, in, it's very difficult to enforce integration in a liberal society. Um, uh, you know, politicians could perhaps talk about it a bit more. I mean, I think local authorities, I mean, I think what you could do is um, encourage local authorities to encourage more mixed neighborhoods and mixed schools and there have been various attempts to do this um and um you can you know data helps here enormously i mean you know if if every year or every couple of years you're publishing data on the degree of segregation in different local authorities the local authorities you know wherever it is in blackburn or um or uh or or burnley or um or Oldham or, or, you know, some of these um, northern towns where there is, continues to be quite uh, high levels of segregation. Uh, you know, if you publish figures on schools and, um, and neighbourhoods, uh, you know, the people who are at the bottom of the list, you know, the most segregated, no one wants to be called the most segregated local authority in Britain. So they would, they, you, would, you would encourage, you know, innovative local thinking about this. Now, I mean, it, it may be that, um, that generational change is uh, is helping to deal with some of these things, and of course, as people have become the more successful groups, as they've moved out of their original um, their sort of areas of residence in, in London or in, even in the northern mill towns, um, they've tended to tended to move into more middle class areas where um, where where there is more mixing in schools and places so aff affluence can sort of help to aff time also you know white british people get more used to you know having ethnic minority people in their town or you know on the tv or whatever i mean and that so you know anyone who's you know under 50 in britain is just you know used to um uh, you know high degree of sort of multi-ethnicity in their in their lives, mm. um, and actually, it's interesting in the Leicester case that uh, one of the kind of there have been various analyses of the punch up um, last year, um, and a lot of people were saying it was the recent immigrants from India and and Pakistan, perhaps. Well, it was the the, the Hindu uh, Muslim. Um, um, uh, immigrants of kind of recent stock who were behind the conflict so it was not you know the, you know, the, the people who have been here for, for years or perhaps were born here um, uh, you know 
do know how to get on with each other and with the majority white community. Oh, and, it, and it was these it was these newcomers who sort of didn't didn't get the rules. But mm. but you know, as you were saying earlier, I mean, there are a lot of these newcomers <laughs> mm. uh, in recent years. So you know, we might well find ourselves with more of these uh, kind of conflicts that we saw in Leicester. Uh, if I can pull you back, because Suella Braverman has asked for thought leaders like yourself <laughs> to put their minds to the uh, rethinking of the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, which is being abused, she claims, because it's woolly in uh, definitions of uh, let's say, words like persecution, discrimination, so far uh, to the extent that when she was challenged in an interview, she said that homosexu uh, homosexuality could be abused as a way of coming, uh, you can claim you're escaping persecution because you're gay. And Elton John has pushed back against that, saying it will encourage uh, discrimination against gays in turn. Uh, do, do you think um, there needs to be a rewriting of, of that uh, uh, I was slightly surprised framework. that she picked on. I mean, I mean, the legal framework in general does make it very difficult to control your borders. I mean, that is the truth. Whether it's the refugee, the combination of the Refugee Convention and the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, um, make it very, very difficult to control borders. I'm not sure that the um, the Refugee Convention should be the main target. I mean, I think actually. Uh, it's much more the European Convention on Human Rights and particularly the clause that talks about um, um, degrading and inhuman treatment, that you should not send anywhere, anyone back to somewhere where they might be subject to that. Um, but you asked me at the, at the, uh, at the beginning um, what I thought of the Rwanda scheme and I never really answered. I mean, I do think, um, I mean, ultimately, you can only stop these movements with agreement um, of between nations. Um, like in the case of Australia, you know, they had an agreement to, to stop boats coming and return them to, was it Papua New, New Guinea? Yeah. Um, you know, we could stop the boats coming over in the blinking of an eye if we had an agreement with the French. And every boat that comes over, we just send back to France, the boats would stop tomorrow. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, France won't do that. Uh, although it's still possible in the longer run that that will be the way that we will stop the boats. It won't be the way we will stop uh, all, all movement, but it, it will probably require some sort of agreement with France if the Rwanda scheme doesn't work. Now, the Rwanda scheme, I mean, I think, um, is it offshoring or, or outsourcing? I, I always forget. Um, I mean, the, the uh, I think we've basically outsourced the whole system to Rwanda, which I think may not be the best way to go. I think there is absolutely nothing wrong in principle with, as, as it were, calling people's bluff. You mm. know, if you're coming here because your life is threatened, mm -hmm. then, um, well, we'll we, will, we will protect you, but, we will, you, but you, you can't decide where you're going to live. And, uh, and actually, I'm afraid, you know, you're not going to come here. Uh, unless you have a particular reason to, we were talking earlier about you know family mm -hmm. sponsorship and so on, um, they're, they're all, that door ought to be open. But otherwise, you um, we're going to we're going to take you to a safe place. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, people don't want that because that's not you know they want to be in a rich country and they want to as it were short circuit the historical process. It's going to take another several generations before you know their lives you know Eritrea or Somalia or wherever are going to be decent places to live. Mm. Um, and you know they they've got they're, they're from a better off family. They have got the resources. They're gonna they're gonna hop over here if they can. 
Um, but there's nothing particularly progressive about that. Uh, it's slowing down the changes that ought to be coming in those countries. And so if they come here, we should say, okay, we will keep you safe. Um, and uh, Rwanda, uh, recently anyway, I think has a broadly perfectly good record on that. What I, I'm a little bit... Um, Not historically, but... Yeah, exactly. But I mean, partly because of that historical memory, uh, and they know that the eyes of the world are on them, uh, they actually, I think, have a reasonably good record. Um, um, and, and indeed, I think the UNHCR itself has talked about uh, um, sending refugees to Rwanda. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, Rwanda, because of what happened there, is obviously, um, you know, sort of somewhat um, sort of difficult, difficult for people to digest. Yep. Um, but I think we should be controlling the whole processing of people. I mean, I think what I'm slightly uneasy about in the case of the Rwanda thing is that we've we've subcontracted the whole process to them. Um, but of course, you know, if the Rwanda scheme works and they have the capacity, uh, then you create an immediate disincentive. It's like my example of France. I mean, as soon as you have an agreement with France and send people back, no one, no one's going to waste ten thousand dollars, their you know their family's hard-earned savings, mm -hmm. um, if they're just going to be sent back to where they don't want to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the whole point about the Rwanda idea is it's a, it's, a, it's a disincentive. You don't have to... Rwanda doesn't have to be full of 150,000 refugees who wanted to come to Britain. I mean, mm -hmm. it might have to be full of 5,000. Um, but so long as it's done rig rigorously, um, then, then you, meet, you, know, you, you dissuade people from making the journey here anyway, not necessarily making the journey full stop. And, you know, to, to dissuade people from making the journey full stop, well, you just, you need some version of, um, I think perhaps call it offshoring rather than outsourcing for the whole of Europe. Mm. Um, Europe needs to say anyone who arrives, you know, via an irregular method is taken to, you know, Ascension Island or, mm -hmm. or wherever. Um, and, uh, and they're, and they're kept there safely in a humane way. And of course, people won't want that. Because people are coming to, to mm -hmm. enjoy living in a in a rich country, they're not coming to be safe, mm -hmm. or not only to be safe. Um, so you know that there are you know some sort of offshoring system like Rwanda will probably be adopted. I think by you know the 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 alternative is, you know what the famous saying you know if, if liberals are not going to protect national borders, then people will vote for illiberals to do it um, mm. for them. They won't necessarily be great supporters of the uh, AFD in Germany or the uh, Marine Le Pen or whatever, but they will vote for them if if so they get sufficiently issue, aggravated yeah. by this policy. And and then you know if we don't have an ordered way of stopping it, you know we will have a violent way of stopping it. Um, you know the, there's this this famous book, um, uh, this kind of this sort of racist dystopian sort of vision that this French guy, Jean Raspey, had. He wrote a famous book called The Camp of the Saints back in the early 1970s. And it's, uh, and it's sort of predicting in, in, a, in some ways what's happening now. There's this enormous boat that I think comes from somewhere in India, in Bengal, and it sort of collects more and more people as it goes, goes around um, the Cape of Good Hope and up the Atlantic, and it's sort of heading for Marseille. Um, and I mean, it has all this sort of grotesque, you know, racist imagery um, of these of the people on the boat, you know, who are coming to destroy Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and um, 
you know, obviously it's a, it's a novel, it's a sort of exaggeration. But I mean, you know, if people get into that sort of camp yeah. of the saints mindset, then, you know, it ends, the, the book ends with an enormous sort of um, violent conflagration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've, you know, politics has got to, has got to intervene. I think we've had liberal complacency about this. People say, oh, well, you know, migration is impossible to stop. Um, well, that's, that's not true. We have shown that you can do it. I mean, the EU did it in pushing back when everyone was coming from Turkey. We, we did a deal with Turkey. Australia has done a deal to, to stop it, to stop, uh, stop boats coming. Uh, it, it can be done. Now, you know, obviously this needs, um, you know, we need to bribe countries with, uh, offers of a lot of money, of legal migration possibilities, you know, from the North African states or, you know, whoever it is that we, we need to sort of control the movement. And, of course, we need to help these countries develop. I mean, you know, rich Western countries, you know, spend a lot of money on development aid and, um, and a lot of that money could perhaps be spent more effectively. But, you know, we need um, we need those countries to get rich quick. I mean, when you get beyond a certain level... The incentive to to move declines. It's it's that sort of in between state that we're probably in for another twenty or thirty years. Um, I mean, leaving aside the whole question of climate change and whether that's going to uh, affect things or not. Um, but for the next twenty or thirty years, there will be a lot of countries that have developed up to a point and have quite big middle classes, but are still pretty miserable places to live. And that you know, if you have the wherewithal, as more people now do, you'll get out. Um, and um, uh, you know, once they move, um, you know, if you're either a lot poorer than that, you don't have very many people can move, or you're a bit richer, and and actually, it is worth staying. I mean, and we've got to help those countries, I guess, get to the get mm-hmm. to the point where they um, where the kind of bright and ambitious people want to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, on that note. David, thank you so much for coming in to speak with me. Congratulations on the anniversary of your (laughs) book, uh, British Dream. And um, uh, where can listeners find you? Um, Well, well, I live in Hampstead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm... uh, Well, I work... uh, I work part-time for Policy Exchange, the think tank. And, yeah, I guess my sort of... I mean, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I mean, I don't have a Substack or anything, um, but uh, yeah, I can be reached that by Twitter. Wonderful, David Goodhart. Thank you so much for speaking with me. All right. Mm-hmm.